Right, well, it's great to be back with you guys here at Anderson. If you're following along in your Essentials packet this morning, we are on Essentials Lesson number six. So you can turn there, Essentials Lesson six. Uh, I really do hope that this week you've had a, a nice break with the 4th of July. Not sure what you guys did. We stayed home. Uh, it was crazy hot. I, I've lived in Texas for years. I can't believe how hot it was this 4th of July. We stayed home and we, we put a kiddie pool out in the backyard and filled it with some water, put out some sprinklers, invited over friends and family, and just let the kids play in the pool. Um, and it was so hot, we adults just kept uh, downing Ozarka bottles one after another to try to stay hydrated. Uh, and really, we hadn't bought enough because we, we didn't realize how hot it would be. And so after a couple hours, we're just drinking all the water we can. We started running out, and, and it was at that point that I looked up and, and was frustrated to see my, my little boy Luke grab one of the last Ozarka bottles. <laughs> And this is why it frustrated me. Um, I, I don't begrudge him the water. I want him to drink the water. But I know that at 20 months, Luke hasn't really figured out yet what to do with an Ozarka bottle. And this water, it was precious to me. It was cold. It was pure. It was, it was really good. Um, he takes that really good water and he walks over to that kiddie pool and pours it out. And, and he pours it out and then he dunks it in and he refills the bottle with, with the hot pool water. It's been sitting out for two hours, so it's like 95 degrees. And the water is dirty. It's covered with grass clippings and it's cloudy from the ice cream that my kids just dumped in it. And um, i, I got to be honest with you, at this point, after two hours with three toddlers playing in it, you know it's contaminated with a lot of urine. And so um, Luke refills uh, th- this water bottle with this contaminated, awful, hot water. And before we can do anything about about it raises it to his lips and drinks. Now, for those of you who are here who don't have kids yet, you're, you're a little disgusted by that story, and, and you're reconsidering your choice to come listen to me preach this morning. You're thinking, why in the world should we look for life advice from a guy who can't even keep his son from drinking urine contaminated water? Um, but for those of you who are parents, especially if you're parents of toddlers right now, what you're thinking is what my wife and I think whenever this happens, and it happens often, we think to one another, man, At least urine is sterile. Could have been a lot worse, couldn't it? Could have been a whole lot worse than that. You know you're a parent of toddlers if the phrase, at least urine is sterile, comes to your mind on a regular basis. Well, it doesn't surprise us anymore when things like that happen, because that's what toddlers do. They they make foolish decisions, like drinking urine-contaminated water. They do it all the time. What's shocking is that we do the same thing. We make the same mistake that my son Luke made, not with water, but with life. We do it every time we choose to sin. When we choose to sin, what we're doing is just what Luke did. We are exchanging that which is uh, beneficial and rewarding and wonderful for that which is destructive and harmful. That's what sin is. It's far more inexcusable when we do it, though, because we know better. And because our choices have far much more devastating consequences. Now this morning we're looking at Essentials Lesson 6. And if you've tracked with us so far, if you've been going through Essentials with us so far, you've probably seen that there is a flow to these lessons. There's a a logical order to where we're going in this packet. The series begins, Lessons 1, 2, and then 5, begin with God. Who is God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? That's where every study of the Bible should begin, with the most important figure in the Bible, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We looked at the nature of God because that is the most foundational thing in life, who God is. And that led us to the next lesson, lesson three. How can I be saved? 
How can I be right with this God? How can I have a relationship with this holy, righteous God? And we learn that it's through the gospel. It's not by my works, by my efforts that I enter into a relationship with this God, that I become right with this God. It's through grace. It's by the grace of God, a free gift from God, that I become right with him. And I receive that gift simply through faith alone. Simply by believing that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, I am made right with this creator God who has given me life. Now, that belief distinguishes us from every other religion out there. All other religions in one form or another teach that that you earn salvation with your God or gods through your efforts, through your works. It also distinguishes us from the official teachings of Roman Catholicism. There are many godly believing Roman Catholics, but the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that justification, being made right with God, is something that doesn't happen until you die, and it's based on your faith plus your participation in the sacraments of the church and your avoidance of mortal sins. We disagree. We believe that you can right now become eternally right with God by grace through faith alone. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you are eternally right with him. Now that led us to the next question. Okay, so if I become right with God by grace through faith alone, well, how can I know that I've been saved? How can I be confident that I am saved? How do I know that once I'm saved, I will always be saved? This was a subject of eternal security. And what we learned is that even as our works play no role in gaining salvation for us, so our works play no role in keeping us saved. Our works don't keep us saved. Our works don't prove that we're saved. Now that distinguishes us from two other branches of theology, Arminian theology, those churches that teach that you can lose your salvation if you don't proceed in good works or if you commit some really serious sin. We disagree. No, you can't lose it. Once saved, always saved. Salvation was always in the hands of God. It's always about what God has done for you. It's not about what you do for God. So you can't lose your salvation by failing to perform good works. We also distance ourselves from Calvinistic churches, Calvinistic theology. Five-point Calvinists believe that our works are proof of our salvation. If you're not doing good works, you prove that you were never saved to begin with. We disagree. When you struggle with your salvation, when you doubt whether or not you're saved, the answer is is not to look at yourself. To become a fruit inspector, looking at the quality of your life to determine if salvation is there. No, that's not what the Bible does. The Bible points us to Jesus. The solution to doubt is to look to Jesus. To look at the only work that matters. The finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sins. That's where you find security. That's where you know you're saved. Is that you look at Jesus and see that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. You are eternally secure. Okay, That leads us to this week's lesson. If works didn't get us saved, and works don't keep us saved, and works don't prove that we're saved, then what is the point of good works? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, the title of this essentials lesson is, How Shall We Then Live? It's actually a very broad lesson. It covers a number of topics. It's too much to cover in one morning, so you can go uh, look through that lesson on your own. I'll only be covering part of it. Uh, Really, I'm going to be focusing on one narrower question. Why should believers choose obedience? Why should believers choose to obey God? If our good works, if our obedience does not earn us salvation, and it does not keep us saved, and it does not prove that we're saved, then what's the point of good works? And let's be honest, the reason we're asking this is because obedience is not easy. Obedience is difficult. 
It is hard work to obey God. In contrast, sin is very easy. Sin comes naturally to us. Sin is what we do by nature from the day of our birth. We all know how to sin. We don't need help with that. The struggle is how do we obey? How do we find the motivation to obey God? That's where we're going this morning. This morning is really all about motivation. Human beings, whether they're toddlers like my son Luke or whether they're adults like us, human beings make choices based on motivation. That's, that's the fundamental basis of the choices you make. When you're choosing between option A and option B, your choice is based on motivation. Which one are you more motivated to choose? Now, unfortunately for us, our sinful flesh and the sinful world we live in and Satan and his kingdom, they are all together constantly motivating us towards sin. We don't need to look for motivation to sin. It's all around us all the time. It's within us. We are constantly being motivated to sin. So if we are going to resist that motivation and instead obey God, then what we need to do this morning is we need to turn to the word of God and we need to find from him sufficient motivation to resist sin and pursue obedience. That's what this morning is about. We're going to turn to the word of God and we are going to look for sufficient motivation to move us, to compel us towards obedience. Now, fortunately, the Word of God is full of motivation to obedience. In fact, I I would argue that uh, one of the primary reasons that God gave us the Bible is to motivate His people to obey Him. Passage after passage, that's the theme of much of Scripture. God is showing us why we should obey Him. There's, There's more reasons that are given in the Bible for why we should obey than I can possibly cover in one morning. I cannot be exhaustive this morning. So I'm just going to hit a few of them. I'm going to hit some of the high points of the motivations that God gives us for why we should obey. Uh, and here's what I'd, what I'd like to ask you to do this morning. Here's what I would encourage you to do. As we go through this list of motives for obedience, I would encourage you to write them down. Write down this list of motives. Write down at least the reference for the verses that we give, these key verses that give us motivation towards obedience. The reason that I'd like you guys to write this down is there's no way you can absorb all of this in one Sunday morning. Not, not possible. You're going to need time to reflect on this list, to review this list, to look up these verses, to think about this stuff. The goal is that this list of motives for obedience would sink down deep into your heart so that when temptation comes calling, when you are tempted by sin, this list would come to your mind and you would remember why obedience is worth it. You would remember why sin is such a bad choice. Okay, so write this list of motives down and then begin to reflect on it and and begin to own this list. That's where we're headed this morning. So let's jump right in. Uh, I'm going to give you this list as a chart, a a chart comparing the results that come into our lives when we obey versus the results that come into our lives when we disobey. So that's what I want to cover this morning. Let's jump right in. Motivation number one, motive number one for why we should choose obedience Because obeying God is loving God. When we obey God, we are loving God. John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now, we've said this multiple times. In the Bible, when you see the word love, it is not primarily talking about a feeling. It is primarily talking about an action. 
Biblical love, it is primarily an action. The feeling may follow the action. It may or may not be there. It is primarily about an action. Love in the sense of loving God is the choice, the action of obeying God. That's how we love God. That's how we love Jesus, as we obey His commandments. That means that if you say that you love Jesus, and yet you choose to sin, then what does that make you? A liar. You're lying, or you've deceived yourself. It is not possible for you to love Jesus and disobey Jesus at the same time. It's not possible, because you love Jesus through obeying Jesus. The way that we give love to God, the way that we return His love that He has given to us, the way that we love Him is through obedience. The only way you can love Jesus is by obeying Jesus. If you do not not obey Jesus, then what you are giving towards Jesus rather than love is grief. Rather than loving God, sin grieves God. We're told in Psalm 78, Verses 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. This is a summary of the 40 years of that first generation that God brought out of Egypt. In love and grace, God redeemed the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. He led them out towards the promised land. And how do they respond to his love? With 40 years of disobedience. And what we're learning is that God was not unaffected by their disobedience. God was not passive about their disobedience. God cared deeply. It grieved God. It pained the heart of the creator of the universe to watch his people disobey him. When we sin, we are grieving the heart of our God. So that's the first reason to obey. Because obedience is to love God. To disobey is to grieve God. Second reason, obedience delights God. I love this verse, Hosea 6, 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that throughout the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites sacrifice a whole bunch of animals. They, They kill a whole bunch of animals, countless animals, and God is honored by that. But God looks down and he evaluates that and he says, you know, that's great that you guys did this, but what I was really looking for, what I really wanted is some obedience, If you really want to make me excited, don't go kill an animal. Do what I say. That's what delights the heart of God. He is delighted when we are loyal to him, when we are faithful to him. That's an incredible thing to think about. The creator of the universe is delighted when we obey. In contrast, when his people disobey, how does God respond? In anger. When we sin, it angers God. Ezra 8.22 The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek Him, but His power and His anger are against all those who forsake Him. That anger flows out of God's nature. We talked in the first lesson of Essentials about how God is holy, holy, holy. He is completely and unchangeably holy. He loves righteousness and therefore He must by nature hate sin. Whether it's sin committed by a believer or sin committed by an unbeliever, God hates it. That's how his nature responds to sin. Now, the good news is the Bible tells us from cover to cover that our God is slow to anger. He is not capricious. He is slow and patient when human beings sin. But if we continue in sin, the result will be that God will grow in anger towards us. And if you've read the prophets or if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that it is not a comfortable place to sit under the anger of God. That's really not where you want to be, sitting under an angry God. The Bible's clear. You don't have to be. 
If you want to avoid the anger of God, all you have to do is obey. If you will obey God, then you will delight him and you will keep from experiencing his anger. That's the second motive for obedience. Third, why should we obey? Because it glorifies God. To glorify God means to to reveal to the world the greatness and goodness of God. It's to reveal his splendor and majesty to the world. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is one of the ultimate purposes of doing good works. Why should you do good works? Because when the world watches us do good works, the response is that they glorify God. They acknowledge how great and good our God is when we do good works. In contrast, if we choose disobedience instead, the result is dishonor towards God. Our sin brings dishonor to God in the sight of the world. Romans 2, 23-24, Paul says, You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's talking about the Jews. Who throughout their history, God chose the Jews and he blessed the Jews to be a a source of light and glorification of God to the world. He wanted the Jewish people to reveal the splendor and beauty of God to the watching world so that everyone would be drawn to worship God. What happened instead? Generation after generation of Israelites gave in to sin. And as a result, the world did not come to see God as beautiful, but as God is, is pretty much insignificant. The God of the Jews was viewed as nobody to take seriously. His own people don't even take him seriously enough to obey him. When we disobey God, it dishonors him in the, in the eyes of the watching world. There's many, many surveys that confirm this. If you were to go uh, gather together a, a room full of unbelievers, especially hostile unbelievers, people who, who wouldn't darken the door of a church, and you were to ask them, why are you so negative against Christianity? What would their answer be? Number one answer, Christians. They are hostile towards Christianity because it is full of Christians. And Christians are hypocrites, they will say. Well, that reality that Christians are hypocrites, it does not excuse their rejection of the gospel, but it does indict us. Yes, we are. Every time we choose to sin, we're being hypocrites. We're showing to the world that we really don't believe what we say we believe. God's really not that great to us. Not great enough to command our loyalty. Not great enough to command our obedience. That's why the world walks away from the church, because we don't obey. When we choose not to obey God, it brings dishonor to his name in the eyes of the watching world. Now, before we move on to the fourth motivation, I just want to put these first three back up on the board. The reason that I started here is often when we think about sin, we think about how it affects us. How does my sin affect me and maybe the people around me? That's not the place to start. The place to start is with God. How does our sin affect God? Now, now here's the problem. I'll share it with an illustration. I saw in a recent business survey, um, they surveyed a whole bunch of of big companies and people who work for big companies, and they concluded that 56% of working Americans admit to stealing office supplies from their company. That's not, not too surprising. You get into the details, you start thinking about it. Why are people so, uh, so happy, so unbothered by the idea of stealing office supplies from their company? Well, these people work for big companies, and they walk into the supply closet, and it's full of thousands of pins and tens of thousands of reams of paper, and they think to themselves, what's the big deal of me taking a little of this? No one's going to know, and certainly no one's going to care. My company has far bigger fish to fry than me. So they, they excuse it. 
We Christians do the same thing because that's how we think of God. God is, is really big. God is huge. God's great. He's got a whole universe to run. He's got billions of people to watch over. So what's the big deal about my little sin? My, my little, he's probably not even going to notice. It's not that big of a deal to God. Who cares? Well, actually, God cares. Actually, God cares deeply about our sin. In God's eyes, there is no little sin. In God's eyes, every sin, even the sins that feel little to us, even the sins that feel excusable to us, they are all rebellion to him. They are all treachery. They grieve the heart of God. They anger God. They dishonor God. I would say that God cares more deeply about our sin than we do. It affects him first and foremost. When we choose to sin, it has great effect upon our creator. There's no little sin in the eyes of God. On the flip side, though, there's no small act of obedience in God's eyes. We may obey God in some little way and no one sees it and we think, oh, that was no big deal. It's a big deal to God. When God's people obey him, what does it say? It says that he delights in it. There's no small act of obedience in God's eyes. He loves it. It communicates honor and glory to him. And the great news is, is God doesn't ever forget things. If you choose to obey, it delights God and God will always remember that. He will always be delighted by your choice to obey. This choice that we face between sin and obedience, the primary person it affects in the universe is God. He cares deeply about our choice. It affects him greatly. That's why we should obey, first and foremost. Now let's move on to motivation number four. Why should we choose obedience? Fourth reason, because it draws us close to God. When we choose to obey, it draws us close to God. On the flip side, when we choose to disobey, it brings distance from God. It distances me from God. The passage we'll use to prove both of these points is from 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's what John is saying in this this beautiful analogy. John uses it often between light and darkness. Light to represent righteousness, darkness to represent sin. He wants us to understand you can't mix the two. God, he is perfectly righteous. He is holy, holy, holy. He can only dwell close with righteousness. He can't welcome sin into his presence. That's impossible for him. And so you just follow the logical conclusion. If God cannot have fellowship with sin, then when you choose to walk in sin, what's the result? You're not close to God. You have put a wall of separation between you and God. Now that doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. It does not mean that you lose your relationship with God, but it does mean that you are pushing yourself away from God. I like to illustrate it this way, Um, especially John as an author. He often uses the analogy of family. It's a beautiful analogy. Um, The family of God works similar to how a human family does. Think of a father and a son. Think of a family where you have a really good father, a loving father, and he has a son, and that son is struggling. That son is struggling between the choice of following his father, being faithful to his father, or disobeying his father. Now, what will happen if the son chooses to disobey? Well, he'll still be his father's son. You can't lose that relationship. You will always be your father's son. So it is in the Christian life. If a believer chooses to disobey, you still are a child of God. You will eternally be a child of God. But just like that son towards his father, that choice to disobey, it brings estrangement. He and his dad aren't going to go fishing after he's chosen to disobey. 
They're not going to be hanging out comfortably on the couch. No, there's, there's this tension. There's this separation created between the two of them because of his choice to disobey. So it is with our Heavenly Father. When we choose to disobey, we bring separation to the relationship. We bring estrangement. We separate ourselves from intimacy with God. Jesus himself talks about it. Here's how he put it. John 15, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. First of all, Notice how incredible this is. Jesus created the whole universe. He is infinitely powerful, infinitely knowing. He has eternally existed. He wants to be our friend? That's crazy. Creator of the universe wants to be your friend. He has one condition. You obey. Now now you enter into a relationship with Jesus through faith, but then if you want to grow as a friend of Jesus, if you want to draw nearer to Jesus and experience his power and love in your life, you must obey. You can't be intimate with Jesus. You can't be close with Jesus if you choose to sin. It's the fourth motive for obedience because it draws us near to God whereas sin pushes us away from God. Fifth motivation for obedience. When we choose to obey, it brings joy. Words of Jesus again, John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. What does every person want in life? You want joy. I don't think if you gathered a hundred Americans together that even one of them would say that they don't want to live a joyful life. Everyone wants to live a joyful life and Jesus tells you how to. Do you want your life to be full of joy? There's a simple way to do that. Obedience. If you obey Jesus, then you are abiding in Jesus. You are abiding in his love. You draw near to Jesus and Jesus fills you with his supernatural joy. Now, a joyful life does not equal an easy life. We live in a broken world. We live in a world full of pain and suffering. God doesn't promise to remove you from that. You'll, you'll still experience the brokenness of life. What joy means is that even in the midst of your pain and suffering, God is going to fill you with his supernatural joy. He's going to give you the ability to, to even be happy, to even be at peace in the midst of that pain. That's true, lasting joy. And it only comes through obedience. The joy that you want is yours if you obey. In contrast, if you choose to disobey, then rather than a life of joy, you experience a life of misery. Sin brings misery. It always does. Psalm 32, 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. God's loving kindness surrounds those who obey, but misery accompanies. It follows those who choose to disobey. Now, uh, that should be pretty easy for us to prove. We just look at, at life around us. We see that all the time. When people give in to sin, it always leads to misery. It may be emotional misery, the stress and, and, and the, the anxiety and the fear and the shame and the regret of sin. That's miserable. It may go on from there and lead to, to physical suffering, lead to financial suffering, lead to relational suffering. If they continue to give in to sin, if it's serious enough sin, it ultimately leads to, to death. Can't get much more miserable than that. Sin always leads to misery. Now that should not surprise us. What is sin? Sin is choosing to disobey the creator of the universe. Well, he's the one who created the universe. He created it to operate in certain ways. When we follow the directions of the creator, then life works out relatively well for us. When we choose to disregard the commands of our creator, life isn't going to work out very well for us because that's how he created it. Sin always leads to misery because that's how the universe was built by God. It's an unavoidable law of life. Now, for us who are believers, it actually goes deeper than that. 
Because God is our father. And and as a good father, God cannot leave us alone in our sin. So when his people give in to sin, God steps in in discipline. Jesus himself says in Revelation 3, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. When a believer chooses to give in to sin, God steps in in discipline. And discipline is where God, out of love, allows a believer to begin to experience the pain of sin. Now, the reason he's allowing you to experience pain is to draw you to repentance, to convince you that their sin is not worth it. He wants to lead you away from sin, but you begin to experience pain. All the pain that sin brings, emotional pain, physical pain, financial pain, relational pain. God's discipline can grow into severity. It can grow to the depth of actual death. We have cases in the New Testament like Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Cases like the the many believers in the city of Corinth who because they continued to give into sin and it was serious sin, God simply said, I'm done with you shaming my name. You're coming home right now. Premature death. They died on the spot. That was the ultimate form of God's discipline. If we give into sin, it leads to a life of misery. That's how sin operates. It always leads us down a path of misery. That's why we should obey. Only obedience can bring us the joy we crave. Sixth reason for obedience Because only obedience brings peace. Only obedience brings the peace of God into our lives. Isaiah 32. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. The author of Hebrews picks this language up. He picks this idea up. And he talks about how when believers walk in obedience, when believers please God, the result is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's an interesting phrase, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When you parse that phrase, what the author of Hebrews is saying is the fruit or result of righteousness is peace. If you want to experience God's peace in your life, simply obey. That's how you can have it is through obedience. This motivation has been really helpful to me. I find in my own life, the times when I am most likely to be tempted by sin are the stressful times of life. I don't know if you can identify with that. Sin is is most tempting when life is stressful, when life is anxious, when work is not going well, or if we've had a conflict with our spouses, or if if our kids are out of control. That's when temptation really hits. Because temptation whispers to you that you can escape. You can have a few moments of blessed escape if you will simply give in to sin. And in the midst of that temptation, I remind myself, no, sin is lying to me. What I really want at this moment is not escape. What I want is peace. That's what I'm desperate for. I want peace deep down inside of me. Peace that can carry me through the stress and strains of life. And the Bible's telling me the only place to get that peace is through obedience. Sin is is leading me down a path that's only going to lead to more stress and more strain. The only way to have the peace of God in your life is through obedience. If you choose to give in to sin instead, then what you get instead of peace is slavery. Sin brings slavery. Romans 6 15 and 16, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Now notice where this passage begins. Paul asks the same question we're asking. We who live under grace, we're saved by grace alone, why should we obey? Should we go ahead and just give in to sin? It's easy. Why shouldn't we do that? Paul says, may it never be. Why should we not give in to sin? Because we need to understand in this choice between obedience and sin, slavery is on the line. If you choose today to give in to obedience, then you become a a slave of obedience. That's positive slavery. 
That kind of slavery leads you towards more and more righteousness in your life. Paul's point is, if you choose to obey today, then the hold of obedience grows over you. Obedience grows stronger in your life. You will want to obey more tomorrow. If you obey today, then obedience is easier tomorrow. In contrast, if you choose to sin today, then you grow the hold of sin over your life. Sin has more mastery over your life. If you choose to sin today, then it will be easier to sin tomorrow. And it will lead you down a life that terminates in death. I think what Paul is giving us in this passage is a theology of habits and addictions. This is the theology behind addiction. It's fascinating to me to see what scientists are discovering through the use of MRI machines on the brains of addicts. People who are are addicted to alcohol or or drugs or sex, things like that. What we're learning is that this principle that Paul's talking about, it was actually hardwired into our brains. God designed our brains so that the actions that we choose today have an effect upon our motivations tomorrow. If I choose obedience today, it gradually, slowly reshapes the neurons in my mind. It leads me so that obedience becomes more natural, more normal, more unavoidable tomorrow. If instead I choose to give in to sin, then that sin reshapes the neurons in my mind. It makes me dependent upon that sin. It makes it natural in my mind to to want that sin. It makes me crave that sin and deeper levels of that sin tomorrow. If I give in to sin today, then slowly that will turn into a habit tomorrow. That will turn into an addiction the next day. Because sin is addictive. All sin is addictive. All sin makes an addict of you. What this means to me, what this reminds me, going back again to the lie that there is a small sin. No, there is no small sin because all sin is addictive. All sin is a beast that is preying on you. It wants to own you and make a slave of you so that you can never escape it. If you give in to sin today, it will make a slave of you tomorrow. That's why we should avoid sin and practice obedience. All right, seventh reason why we should obey. Seventh motive, and this one moves beyond us. See, sin doesn't just affect us, and it doesn't just affect God. Sin also affects the people around us. If we choose to obey or choose to sin, it has massive effects on other people. When we choose to obey God, it unleashes God's blessings into the lives of those around us. That's very easy to prove. Look at countless examples in Scripture. These are just a few. Abraham chooses to obey God. Genesis 22, he's going to sacrifice his son Isaac. What is the result of that? Well, God confirms the Abrahamic covenant, which unleashes God's blessing to all the Israelites and all the Gentiles, all the world. We ourselves are beneficiaries of Abraham's obedience. Because he obeyed, we get to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Huge effect that that guy's obedience had. Uh, Peter in Acts 2, he stands up in an obedience. He boldly proclaims the gospel to a hostile audience. As a result, God's spirit falls upon that audience. 3,000 people are saved that day and the church begins. We're still enjoying the effects of his obedience in that chapter. Cornelius, a Gentile, Acts chapter 10, he chooses to walk faithfully with God. What's the result? God sends Peter with the gospel. Cornelius' entire family hears and believes the gospel. Dude brought salvation to his whole family because he chose to obey. When we choose to obey, it unleashes blessing into the lives of those around us. In contrast, when we choose to sin, it unleashes the curse of sin into the lives of people around us. Sin results in a curse upon others. Again, very easy to prove from Scripture. David, he committed a number of sins in the course of his life. And one of them, towards the end of his life, he gave in to pride. 
And he did a census of his army, which God had specifically outlawed. He has his army counted, and as a result, God steps in, and 70,000 Israelite men are put to death. 70,000 guys die because of this one guy's sin. Solomon, that one's pretty easy. He gives in to immorality and idolatry, and the nation is divided and heads towards uh, doom because of him. Peter, in Galatians, later in Peter's life, we learn that, that out of a desire to please others, particularly please some powerful Jews around him, Peter withdraws from Gentiles. He'll no longer have meals with Gentiles. And as a result, because of that sin of pride and sin of trying to please other people, he brings division to the church in Galatia. And he strengthens the false teachers who are there. Our sin brings devastation on the lives of those around us. Now, that obvious, is obvious for those who are close to us. When, when we choose to sin, it brings devastation and misery into the lives of those who are close to us, the lives of those we love. If you're married, if you choose to sin, your sin is never private. You're now bonded to another person. When you sin, it brings misery not only into your life, but in the life of your spouse. It also brings misery into the lives of your children. Who are your children going to learn how to follow God from? From you. If you're not walking with the Lord, that has a direct, lasting impact on them. You bring a curse in the lives of your children when you choose disobedience. It affects the church. We, we are all beneficiaries of one another's obedience, and we all suffer when we disobey. And finally, it, it affects the world at large. Our sin goes far beyond the borders of this building. When you choose to sin, you are being an agent of darkness and destruction in this world. I'll throw out one example to you, uh, because this one is, is kind of near and dear on my mind. It drives me crazy in movies when I see them uh, celebrate the smoking of marijuana. Seems like not a big deal. Let's make fun of it. Somebody smokes marijuana. So let's say that uh, tonight you go and you buy $100 worth of pot to smoke. Seems like not that big a deal. It's not one of the harder drugs. It's not like cocaine or heroin. It's not that big a deal. Uh, and there's tons of people who are trying to legalize it, right? I mean, there's a whole movement to legalize pot. So really, not that big a deal, right? Well, but of the $100 that you spend on that pot, well, $80 goes uh, from, from your dealer to the smuggler who brought it up from Mexico. And, and that $80 goes across the border. And, and 70 of it goes to the cartel boss who supplies those drugs. And with that $70, uh, he buys a gun that he gives to one of his hired men to defend his territory. And in the process of defending his territory, he gets in a battle with the police, and a police officer is killed. Buy the gun that your $70 bought. I'm waiting for the day when an American court will charge somebody who's bought pot with accessory to murder. Because that's what it is. When you give in to sin, you are supporting the darkness in this world. Now, no prosecutor could make that case, but God can. God knows. He sees the far-ranging impact of our sin. He sees how it devastates people. We'll never know. Sin is never private and it is never individual. When we give in to sin, we unleash the curse of sin into the lives of those we love and in the lives of people we will never know. That's the seventh reason why we should choose obedience. Finally, eighth reason that I can give you this morning, lots more that the Bible gives, but eighth one we're going to cover today. Why should we choose obedience? Because this choice between obedience and sin outlasts us. It outlasts this life. The choice we make between sin and obedience has consequences that last for eternity. When we choose to obey, it results in reward that will last forever. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
If you look at the details of this judgment, Paul is talking to believers. He's including himself in this. We are going to stand before Jesus, the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to evaluate our lives. And what is he evaluating? Is it our faith? No, it's our deeds. He's looking at our actions. Did we choose sin or did we choose obedience? When we die, the first thing that's going to happen for us who are believers is we're going to stand before our Lord and Savior. We're going to stand before Jesus and we're going to give an accounting of our lives. And it's not an accounting of faith and it's an accounting of faithfulness of our deeds. He's going to evaluate our lives. And the result is if we have lived good lives, if we've lived lives of good works, if we have served him and been faithful to him as his people, the result is Revelation 2, 26 and 27. He who overcomes, the believer who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nation. To to the believer who is faithful, Jesus will share his authority over the earth with that person. I don't know what this is going to look like. I just know it's going to be great. Jesus received authority from his father over all of the universe. And he wants to share that authority with you. He wants you to be a co-ruler with him over the earth for all eternity. You can only have that if you obey. If you're faithful to him now, then you earn more opportunities to rule with him in the future. In contrast, if we choose to sin, then when we stand before Jesus, rather than receiving reward, what we receive is shame. The believer who stands before Jesus and has not lived a faithful life will experience shame. 1 John 2.28. Now, little children, and when John says little children, he's talking about believers. Now, believers, abide in him, that is Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, back to John 15, how you abide in Jesus. Through obedience, you draw near to Jesus by doing what Jesus told you to do. Through obedience, you abide in him. And if you do abide in him, then when you stand before Jesus for judgment, the result is reward. It is blessing and honor. If you don't, if you don't abide in Jesus through obedience, if you dishonor Jesus with your life, then when you stand before Jesus, you will fall on your knees in shame. You will begin eternity with with weeping. As you, as you fall on your knees before your Savior and realize the life you have squandered, the life he purchased for you with his own blood that you have not even returned the favor to obey him. Now, it does tell us later in Revelation that God will wipe away every tear, but that presupposes there's tears to wipe away. The believer who's not been faithful will weep when he stands before Jesus. He will be ashamed when he sees his Savior and realizes that he did not live a life that was honoring To this God who died for him. I don't want to be in that camp. I don't want to start eternity with shame. My hope is that through obedience I can bring honor to Jesus. And then when I stand before Jesus, hear those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's my goal. That's the motivation I remind myself when temptation comes. Obedience brings honor when I stand before Jesus. Sin brings shame. Okay, so now let's throw all these up on the board. Why should we obey God? Because obedience is an act of love to God, whereas sin grieves the heart of God. We should obey because it delights God. It makes the heart of our Creator happy when we obey. In contrast, when we sin, it angers Him. Why should we obey? Because it glorifies God. It reveals to the world how great and good He is. In contrast, when we sin, it dishonors Him in the eyes of a watching world. We should obey because obedience draws us near to God. Whereas sin pushes us away from God. If we want to be near God, if we want to enjoy friendship with Jesus, you can only have that through obedience. Fifth, why should we obey? Because it leads to a life of joy. 
Whereas sin leads to a life of misery. That's an unavoidable law of the universe, a law of life. If you give in to sin, it will always leave misery in its wake. Six, obey because it leads to God's peace. It brings the peace that you desperately want in the anxiety and fear of life. In contrast, if you sin, it makes a slave of you. Seventh, obey because it blesses others. It unleashes God's blessings to those near and far away. In contrast, when you sin, it brings a curse upon all those around you. And finally, obey God because it results in reward that you can enjoy for all eternity. Whereas sin brings only shame when you stand before Jesus. Now, the reason that I put this all on the board is I want to encourage you guys, like I said, to write it down. I'd encourage you to write it down and to begin to uh, reflect on and even memorize this list. I'd encourage you to memorize this list, maybe memorize a few of the verses we covered today. This is great material. These are weapons for you when temptation comes. For myself, I've taken this list, a form of it, uh, and I've typed it up in really tiny font into this little card that I folded up and I keep in my wallet. I keep it with me at all times. Why do I do that? Because I need to be reminded of why obedience is worth the price. No one needs to motivate me to sin. My flesh, this world, and Satan is always motivating me towards sin. What I need is sufficient motivation to resist that urge and obey God, be faithful to God. And so I have a list of motives, a list of reminders of the blessing and beauty that comes into my life through obedience and the harm and destruction that comes into my life through sin. I encourage you to do the same. Put together your motivation list that reminds you and keeps drawing you back to the reward of obedience and the price of sin. And begin to memorize some of those key verses that you can quote to yourself when temptation comes. God wants us to walk in obedience. I look at this list and it draws me back to what my son did on July 4th. And I think to myself, man, Luke drinking uh, pea-contaminated water, really not a big deal compared to what I do. When I give in to sin, that's a far more foolish choice than what my son chose. This list helps us understand that sin is not just wrong. Sin is absurd. When you sin, you are choosing to pour out what what is beneficial and beautiful and rewarding in your life. The obedience that God wants to reward in your life. You're choosing to sacrifice that for that which is harmful and destructive to you and everyone around you. Sin is not just wrong. It is Absurd. So why should the believer obey? What is the point of good works in the Christian life? That's what the essentials packet is getting at. Well, the question is, why wouldn't the believer obey? Why in the world would you choose sin? It destroys everything it touches. Obey because that's a life of joy and peace and reward and beauty and blessing. It delights the heart of God when we do it. Good works are essential. Not essential for earning or keeping or proving salvation. They're essential for living the good life that God has called you to enjoy. Let's pray for God's help to do exactly that. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we come before you and we praise you and we thank you that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Thank you, Lord, that salvation is not by works. Lord, we confess that if salvation is by works, absolutely none of us would have it. All of us would perish, separated from you, Lord, because none of us live the lives you've called us to live. None of us is perfect. And so, Father, we thank you that in your grace and mercy and love, you willingly sent your son, Jesus, who willingly took our sin upon himself and died in our place. Thank you that you've saved us by grace. And, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who hasn't come to know the beauty and truth of the gospel. Please open their eyes to the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let this be the day of their salvation. 
And Father, for those of us who have received that gift, we pray, Father, that we would live lives that are loving and honoring to you. Please, Father, help us to see sin as it truly is. Help us to see obedience as it truly is. Lord, our flesh in this world and Satan are constantly enticing us towards sin. They want us to see the beauty and reward of sin. Help open our eyes to see the truth, Lord, to see that sin is lying to us. To see that it only destroys everything it touches, that it brings a life of slavery and misery. That it dishonors and angers you, that it grieves you, that it brings destruction on those around us. And it results in shame when we stand before Jesus. Help us to see the cost of sin and be turned away from it, Lord. And help us to see the beauty and worthwhileness of obedience. Help us to see how it pleases you, Lord. How obedience delights you. Help us to see how it brings joy and peace into our lives and in the lives of those around us. Please, Lord, help us to live obedient lives. And I pray for any person in this room, Lord, who is caught up in sin. Maybe the illustration of pot, Lord, was really hard for them to hear because they're having a really hard time turning from substance abuse or from sexual addiction or from whatever it might be, Lord. I pray, Lord, that in your conviction, you would also lead them to hope and that you would lead them to victory. I pray, Father, that you would help them to to store up these motivations in their heart, Lord, that these motivations would be help when they're tempted. I pray that you would help them to reach out to other believers, to pastors, to a counselor, to someone who can help them to begin to win victory over this sin in their lives, Lord, to help them to live the life of obedience and reward and joy that you've called us to live. Father, you are so worthy of our obedience. Help us to be the kind of people who please you and glorify you in the eyes of this watching world, because you are worth it. Thank you most of all for your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.